Now, Sammy, as mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to catch up right now with David Raphael. And you know how much I've been looking forward to uh, catching up with David because I get to play some old race calls and I'm like nothing better than playing old race calls. David, good afternoon to you. Uh, good afternoon, Chris, Sam. Hope all is well up there. Yeah, always well in, uh, in sunny Queensland, David. Uh, always well. How do we find you on this uh, Friday afternoon? You're in Sydney now? Yeah, Sydney's the base. Has been for a while now. Um, moved from Hong Kong. Originally Melbourne, went to Hong Kong for a bit. And yeah, I've been in Sydney for course, nearly 10 years now. We were travelling around quite a bit and back and forward and all of that. And racing took us all over the world for a long time. So it's, it's nice to be in a base for a while. We've been here for a few years now. It certainly did. I mean, uh, going back through some of uh, your race calls, you, you certainly did travel all around the world. But before we get to that, let's go right back. 1988 was when you started at 3UZ in Melbourne. Yeah, I, I was a, as a young kid, I got a gig. Well, not even a gig. I helped a, a, fellow, uh, a fellow combatant. It was pretty ordinary calling the trials at Cranbourne Trotting Trials, the harness racing trials. That's where I got to start. I was about 14 or 15. And he'd call them. And he had no idea what it was. And I'd point at the bit of paper and he'd say, Fred's in front. And I'd point at the second horse when he's trying to figure it out. <laughs> Harry's second and George's third. Finally, he said, you better have a go. So that's how it all started. I, I don't know how I picked up the bug, but I just wanted to be a race caller from that moment onwards. And was worked with horses on weekends. And that's where it really all began from. So prior to that, you didn't have any dreams of being a race caller? No, I mean, that was about 14 or 15. Um, that's, you know, the bug hit me pretty quick. And... Luckily, through contacts, just got a gig at 3UZ because I went from calling barrier trials to a few picnic meetings and restricted meetings and mainly harness racing. Well, actually, just harness racing at the start as a you know, 15, 16-year-old. I think I called my first actual meeting when I was about 16 and um, the squeaky voice somehow survived and got a gig carrying the bags for Brian Martin and doing everything at 3UZ as it was then. And um, that was back in about 86. I was just turned 18 and it was a great grounding because in those days, you got to do everything. When you worked in a radio station in the old days, you were editing, you were carrying bags, you were working in the studios, you were producing, you were doing a bit of panel work, reading totes. You, you got to learn everything, a bit of time in the newsroom and even the way you used to edit up tapes. It was an old, we had a six track reel-to-reel tape and if somebody took a breath, you'd just get the tape out and you'd cut it off and stick it back together. And I mean, it was, it was almost archaic, but it was amazing. It's, now you look at computer screens and push a button and audio plays, whereas in the old days we had to put a cassette in and push play and if it spooled, we'd give it a bang on the top and you know, you'd hope that it'd play the commercial that somebody had paid a fortune for. It's, it's, it was great grounding and it learned it really taught you how to do everything live. And Dave, I, you know, uh, 3Z was, uh, it was such a big thing back then, wasn't it? That, that radio station, well, like, you know, I mean, I grew up with it sort of, uh, well, Every time you got in the car, it was on or it was on at home. It was, you know, it, it was just, yeah, it was part of life. And and it was, I guess, the, um, you know, the rock stars that were part of that, um, that, that radio station way back then, they were, you know, they were key figures in horse racing, weren't they? Well, they were key figures in horse racing, but also in sport and media. We were at our age then, Sam, you know, you were a little bit younger than me, but at our age then, not by much, I might add. <laughs> three years it was, I mean, there was 3DB and three years it, and they, it was the greater because it was the number one station. And you go back 20 years before, when the Beatles came to Australia, I used to work with a guy called John Vertigan, who a lot of people will remember and know. And 
JV used to talk about how they followed the Beatles around the country and it was the whole country listened to the network and it was greater three years in Victoria that everybody was listening to and it just held its place. There was only three or four TV stations that people would watch and radio was king and if you wanted to know something, you turned on the radio and you knew immediately and, and the people that were on radio in those days, they were household names and we go sort of 10, 15 years later when we came along, we had a little... We just held on to that little bit of history and it still had a lot of power and eminence around it. And as things changed and cable came in and you know, so much happened, it's been diluted. And once upon a time to talk on radio, it was a very, very special thing to do, whereas now there's a million stations we can all log into around the world. So it's, it's lost that audience volume, but it's still got that special live element about it. So, so, uh, so I, I guess... Um, uh going on from that and and when you started race calling uh i think my uh you know my, i when when chris nelson told me that david rafael was coming on i was thinking my earliest memories of of david rafael calling was uh how's this one like you will not remember it but uh i remember it and it was the inside track at sale i do not know i i have since that day i left that that race course I do not know that they've ever raced on the inside track at sale ever again. I, you know, so it was, it was like their trial track and for whatever reason, you know how they used to have those non-tabs, you know, Stony Creek, band style, Terrell, yeah. and, and, and that sale, it was the inside track and you called the meeting and, and I was thinking where, like, you know, I, like I'm going to say I was, I reckon I was still an apprentice and, uh, I never forget this. You called uh, this horse called you Potty Pon Pon, right? Heather oh, I Steen. remember the horse. Oh, my God. Well, there you go. Like, <laughs> isn't, isn't it amazing? Things that stick in your head, right? And and, and I, here I am. I'm thinking, I remember David Rafael calling a race meeting on the inside track at sale. Like, it's it's crazy things. But, it, you know, it was, it's, it was a long time ago now, wasn't it? You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're... T- we, we're... We're going back too far. Hey, do me a favour. I'm hanging up if you want to do a shocking call. I'll do you a favour. We'll go forward instead of back. <laughs> so in, in 1997, you landed the gig to call in Hong Kong. Now, how did you land that role? So I'd been working at UZ. It was my first job. Well, I'd had a few jobs in harness stables and stuff to helping out and learning to do horses. As a kid, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be Brian Gath, a champion trotting driver, and then the race calling came along. <laughs> And I got a job at UZ and I worked there for umpteen years and called the trots and the dogs and then got onto the gallops, started, learned how to call the gallops really while I was doing it. Um, there was a basically a job came up to become the number two caller with Terry Spargo in Hong Kong. And then that all sort of catapulted pretty quickly. It was, you know, come at the end of the middle of the year, which was the end of their season. And they said, well, if you want to turn up sooner rather than later, you can. And I was... I was like, I saw an opportunity and I just jumped and grabbed it. I mean, I was, I was down the, the rung. I was the number two caller for the trots and getting a few gallops meetings here and there and calling a lot of greyhounds and doing a lot of different stuff. But an opportunity like that came to jump on a plane and hop on the other side of the world or such. You, you said yes. When something comes up like that, you grab it. And you really did become the voice of the Hong Kong racing. I mean, I can think of so many good races and so many good race calls and they were all from you. I mean, you really did... Um, dominate in that 10 years you were there? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy I'm remembered, but there was a lot of great soundtracks that I was a part of. 
when I went there, Hong Kong and the coverage had a lot of vision to become bigger and grander. And people knew about Hong Kong, but they didn't really know that much about it because you couldn't really watch that much of it. And when I went there, they, they were changing the landscape and broadcasting to different parts of the world. And they started broadcasting to Australia, the big day. So all of a sudden, what seemed to be a bit of a mythical place was there on the screens in front of you. And the product looks really great. I mean, at Happy Valley, they're not great horses, but it looks really yeah. good. Yeah. And the big days, the good horses are as good as. And I know we just called a few races and got it right, thankfully. And I remember when it first came on our screens here, and I think, well, I haven't seen this place before, Chartin. It just reminded me I'm watching a race in Sydney. Where, where, where's this been yeah. all this time? And it looked like I was watching a race out of Randwick or Rose Hill. And in those days, international racing wasn't the big thing that it is now. I mean, now yeah. you can turn the turn on the TV and if you see them from everywhere it's, it's, it's amazing where you can watch races from but it wasn't like that then so it was pretty special and you knew the names and the big names were going and then the legends grew and the money and, and all of that that we all heard about it was right there in front of you Now speaking of legends, the first one that uh, you might have come across was uh, was Silent Witness Now he made his uh, debut on Boxing Day back in, in 2002 uh, He won his next 16 starts after he won that, so he was 17 uh, 17 wins before he got beaten, which we get, which we'll get to. But one of his highlights was uh, the 2003 Hong Kong Sprint or the International Sprint. Uh, let's see how he went that day. Stand by. And away they go. Silent Witness jumped well. The Tatling got a little bump. Cheerful Fortune parks off the fave. Behind it, the trader is last. They wind up national currency in front. Silent Witness has got to find his heart and come after the South African sprinting sensation. It's national currency in front. Silent Witness digs in. Firebolt comes on. Cape of Good Hope staying hard. South Africa, here they roar. But the best in the world runs to him, goes by him. Silent Witness draws a length in front of national currency. Silent Witness. What a champion! Wins at a length the national currency. Was that the day that he really put himself on the map? Oh, to all of us, he'd put himself on the map from his second or third start. He was just this big, powerful speedball. And looking at him as a horse, he had a sprinter's frame about him, but everything he did, it it was he needs more ground. And I think it was one of the great training efforts for Tony to to, to contain him back in distance because, yes, he was so good at 1,012, but... He, there's no doubt he's always a seven furlong, 1600 metre, had that sort of potential about him, but they kept him back. And he just used to brain everything in Hong Kong. And he'd run the times and he had this high cruising speed. And it was very black caviar style, just run to the front and he'd run the times like Winx used to just run incredible times. That's what he used to do. And those, he won, he won that race a couple of times. And, and that year, national currency, he was this boom horse from South Africa when they were just starting to explore, you know, racing outside their own regions. And he was very much the same. He was this high speed ball horse. He was a little thing, narrow. And, you know, he, he, was, an, he was a very good horse, but he, he looked, compared to Silent Witness, he looked like a little wimp of a thing. <laughs> sort of like Sam in his old days at the nightclub. <laughs> 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 He's still doing but those he could rounds run, too. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll give that. Now he, <laughs> he, he could also, run, and, and he's going to say he also won in two thousand and four. Backed it up. Yeah, yeah, he won back to back. And you think about the horses he beat, like the Tatling was a good sprinter in England. Uh, Cape of Good Hope, you'd remember he came to Australia and he won at the William Reed, and they actually forced the owners to run that horse in Australia and bring him back to Hong Kong and run him a week later in a big race in Hong Kong, and he still ran third or fourth. I mean, it, it, 
The horses that the, the raced internationally then, there was five or six melting pots each year that were like a grand final, and horses came from all over the world to run in those races, whereas now they just select a target here and there. But yeah. once upon a time, and it's not that long ago, they were grand finals three or four times a year of the best clashing against each other on the biggest days, and that's what that race was. Well, in 2005, he was going for 18 straight wins, and he tackled the, uh, the champion's mile. Bowman's crossing, British Luck going for inside, runs Delzeo behind him. Side of witness, cuddled at, at the 400, leads from the Duke, who's Dower. Cosmo Bulk off the bridle, Tiber switches out, attraction needs room, can't kick. Next, British Luck coming to the inside, side of witness, he's cuddling at it. British Luck coming through, will sneak late. Ain't here coming on from the Duke, right there also, trying to battle it out, super kid. He has to ask side of witness, he lifts, here comes British Luck, comes to run him down. The crowd roar, the roof of the grandstand rattles. Witness, ain't he a third? What was the feeling like after he got beaten that day? Uh, I think the wind was taken out of everybody, but yeah. but to all of us on the on the that sort of involved inside, bullish luck. I think he went around eighteen or nineteen dollars that day. It really should have been. Five to four, one, five to two, the other, because bullish luck was always a big chance to beat him. But then the story goes on afterwards. The instructions from Tony Cruz, who trained both of them, Gerald Mosse rode uh, bullish luck, and Tony said, "Drop him back, pull him to the outside, and just let him get home. He'll he'll get home as fast as he can." And of course, Gerald, everybody pots him, but in big races, he just does unbelievable things, and he. Got a slight bump at the start, which the horse was not quick out anyway. Bullish luck, and he went to the inside, and he snuck up the inside. And he, I still remember it at the six, five, six hundred metre mark. Super kids behind the leader, following the, the best horse in the world. Bullish luck's three back the fence, and the rider, I think it was Glenn Scofield, it was Glenn came one off the fence. I'm sure it was Super Kid came off the fence. Bullish luck slid up behind him, and then he was always going to get the run. So for 200 metres, it was just a matter of whether he could run the time. And every stride he took, he was getting closer and closer and closer. It was only the last bit he got him, but he was going to be there at the 200 metre mark. And when you watch just him, it all makes sense. And everyone was in shock, but all of us, all the trainers and jockeys and you know all the people that worked, that we weren't surprised. But the punters... He was unbeatable, Simon. How could anybody beat him? What was going on? So they were in shock for weeks. Yeah, it's just a massive anticlimax when something like that happens. Now, you caught a lot of, a lot of other uh, great duels uh, in your time in Hong Kong. Now, there wouldn't have been many better than the uh, the 2000 Hong Kong Mile, and it was Sunline versus the very, as Sammy and I were saying earlier, the very apt Hong Kong-named Fairy King Prawn. Uh, this, this, was a, this was a real clash. Do you want to set this one up before we go to the audio? Oh, Fairy King Prawn, he was like the silent witness of Hong Kong. He he started out in unbelievable style. Ricky Yu trained him and Ivan Allen ended up getting him and whether he poached him or not, I suppose you could say he did because he was the best horse in Hong Kong and he was the first world-class horse in Hong Kong. He's probably one of the most important horses in Hong Kong's racing besides silent witness because he was the first to travel overseas and win a big mile race in Japan and he turned up that year into the mile with performances that were like out the back and stormed home and getting home in incredible times. And he he had to put up with Sunline, who we knew was going to be a mile in front of him at the top of the straight, and it was really his measuring stick. And the whole weeks leading into it, all of the big horses that were running, the whole world was just talking about him, Fairy King Prawn, and her Sunline and the clash that was going to be. And it made world headlines in racing. The, the, the media came from everywhere, and it was, it was like Muhammad Ali sort of feeling about the whole race. Well, it didn't let us down.
Left two lengths in front. Adam New Trump sticks on. Here comes Fairy King Braun. It's sunlight in front. Fairy King Braun, the horse of Hong Kong, coming after the mayor of the world. 150 to go. Sunlight's a length in front. Fairy King Braun trying to get him. Sunlight, the Kiwi pulling out stops. Fairy King Braun lifts. They come to the line. Fairy King Braun dives, but he missed. Sunlight, the mayor of the world, wins it from Fairy King Braun. She just held on and they gapped the rest. Yeah, it's the best losing performance I've ever seen, and she was just unbelievable. She got a breather in front, and Adam just let it be alone for about 150, 200 metres, and she, she ran a 25 split, which just doesn't happen at that level. You don't get away with things like that, and she was able to... Well, she wasn't able to hold on. She ran a time, she ran a great race, but, it, you know, a, a true champion almost beat another true champion. It was just one of those amazing clashes. Now, uh, even though you were calling in Hong Kong between 97 and 2007, you also did some work for um, Emirates World Racing Championships, 98 to 2002, and that enabled you to call some uh, terrific races around the world. Now, when I asked you one of your favourites, you mentioned it was the 2000 uh, Japan Cup. Out by Agnes Floyd comes on it. Anybody's race. 400 metres to go. Stay gold in front. He's had a dream run and he was able to get a lead. John's call second. Matakani Kinohachi sticking on in third. Mishadoto continues to stay on. TM up rolls asked the effort, but he's got two lengths to make up. And here comes Fantastic Light. This is for the Emirates table. Mishadoto hit the front. TM up low. The Japanese legend runs to them. Fantastic Light trying to get him. TM up low. The crowd rolls. Their champion wins it by a head in a thrilling finish. Fantastic Light may be second from Micho Dodo either way. Another Athena at a game race in for... TM Op- Opera O. Oh, it was an amazing horse. People don't understand the clash that those two had. I mean, Micho Dodo and he, they, they ran all year. And in Japanese racing set on, on certain dates, certain races, they've only got five or six majors unlike other countries, and the best horses run on those days, that's what they target for, and they ran all year, and it didn't matter where TM Opera, he got held up, he was in front, he was behind, whatever happened, he beat the other horse by a neck to a half length every time on his merits, and the word was that he wasn't at his best, and when he walked out that day, he looked rough in the coat, he looked plain, he looked average, he really looked average, and he was the you know dollar fifty favourite or something like that, and when you've got a pool of 30 million US dollars, that's, that's a lot of money to wager it on him, and they lined up again, and he probably shouldn't have won that race, but he did. And that day, he became the highest um, prize money winning thoroughbred in the world. It was one of those iconic moments in sport. And it was because I was so engrossed in the international racing at that point, travelling all over, he, he was just that very special horse. But the rest of the world didn't really understand how important those two horses clashing were. And it was, again, it was just a, a memorable race. And I see Japanese friends again. and. They keep talking about that horse and that race. That was an amazing day. So, Dave, I'll tell you what, uh, there was amazing passion in your voice when, yeah. when you uh, call a race. And uh, something that uh, I, 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 it was always noticeable to me, you know, you, you could tell that you, you just loved race calling. Do you miss it? Uh, I'm, I'm, I did for a while, but I miss the storytelling, actually. Getting involved with the Emirates stuff and the BBC and Sunset and Vine and doing all that stuff with the, those. It was making the stories, and then when you spend all that time making the story, then at that moment that the race happens, I think that just builds through. And you know that, Sam, when you were doing your Melbourne Cup stuff, you're, you're living it all month, leading in all week, and then at that moment, you, how can you not be passionate about it? Yeah. Because if you like the game, it's, it becomes a part of you. 
So speaking of stories, this is the race call, uh, uh, as I said, is one of my favourites, if not one of, if not my favourite. Let's set up before, before we play it. The 2001 Irish Champion Stakes, the unbeaten Galileo and Fantastic Light. I mean, we're talking about a couple of decent horses there. Oh, yeah, this this was a clash, and remember, they'd, I don't know if a lot of people are aware, but they'd they'd run previously uh, at the uh, Prince of Wales at, at Ascot. Um, it was a Prince of Wales or King George? No, it was King George. Sorry, they'd run at the King George, and of course, Fantastic Lights, the older horse, Galileo's a three-year-old, so he had the weight advantage, and they put Galileo in front of Fantastic Light that day at Ascot, and he was able to hold him off. Galileo ran up, beat him, you know, ran up to be beaten by Fantastic Light. He looked him in the eye, and that seven-pound, he he held him off. So the whole thing about that race in Ireland, it was going to be the same and same again. And Frankie tells this amazing story. Sheikh Mohammed sat him down and he said, it doesn't matter what you do, you will be in front of that horse at the start, which was riding Fantastic Light completely outside his comfort zone. He said, if you don't ride him that way, you won't be coming home. Sure enough, the gates open and Frankie listened. <laughs> and we had a pacemaker in that race. He got a fair way in front, but his uh, his number was up on the home turn. On the yeah, corner, he's pushed out in front. Ice Dancer at the 600, leads by eight lengths. Next is Give the Slip. Now Galileo sliding up outside. Fantastic Light. They're going to have to push on together. Fantastic Light's gone to the inside. Galileo's gone to the outside. They run the corner. Ice Dancer's in front, but he's off the bridle. Fantastic Light's trying to cut Great champion sweep up to the lead. Fantastic Light got a leap break. Galileo's coming at him. The great Galileo comes after Fantastic Light. 150 out. It never gets better. Fantastic Light. Galileo. Galileo's fighting at him. Fantastic Light the inside. What a race. The race of the world. Fantastic Light. The Emirates World Champion wins it. Galileo ahead second. Ten lengths. Third behind them. Mark. Well, it sounded good on audio, but I can tell you it's even better watching it as well. Oh, it's, it's the best duel because from about the 400 at the top of the straight, and it's a great track at Leopardstown, it's a flat track, and they just went stride for stride in sync, and then Galileo came to beat him. As I say, the tactical decision was brilliant because Galileo was getting left in front and, or in front of his major opponent and getting an easier time of it, and this day they made Galileo you know, really work up and, and pull the pressure on from the 400 and make him do the work instead of letting him have the time in front, and it just showed what a good horse Fantastic Light was. And look at the stallion that he's turned into be Galilee. He's unbelievable. Even though he hasn't worked to the same level in Australia, he's been the most dominant stallion that's been around for so many decades. It's extraordinary the horse he was. David, tough question to uh, to round us out, but your most favourite race call, the one that means more to you than any other, would it be TM Opera Oak? Um, I don't know if I've got a favourite, actually. That's, that's a good question. I, I don't... I, yeah, TM Opera is a favourite. I like Vengeance of Rain. London News was pretty special to me as well when I first went to Hong Kong. He was the first South African horse to ever... He was the first South African sportsman of any sort to step outside South Africa from apartheid region, and he turned up in Hong Kong. I'd been there a couple of weeks, and he won the QE2 Cup, and that race, that, that was a pretty memorable race because it was my first big race, but... You know, to a, to a global audience. It's, I know, sometimes I've had a bet. I, I do remember one day at Sonata Trots, we backed the thing for $47 <laughs> and we got the money. I remember that. You should, I would have hunted down the video or the audio for that if I could have. <laughs> no, it's, I, uh... I, I, I mentioned, uh, I said it uh, to Cam Luke on uh, SEN Track a couple of weeks ago about um, 
Remember Brian Blackmore when it when <laughs> when he'd have his money on one and you know like and, it's and, confetti and, uh, and he would dead set and like he could roast the jockey like and and you could tell that he was you could tell that he's uh he's had his last on this and you could just tell in the call couldn't you he was uh, he was savage sometimes. Oh, it, it, it stated as it was. I used to go around with Brian. Blake. I still did my apprenticeship with Brian and so many of those callers. He would call a race. He'd put, there'd be 18 two-year-olds. It'd be the first race. He'd learn the colours going down at the start, and then he'd tuck the race book in his back pocket. So he'd just go purely off memory. And one would be stuck three wide, and if he couldn't find it, he'd be fiddling for the, the race book. And he'd look at it like that bit. And then at the 200-metre mark, if it was the leg of the quaddy, the, the favourite would be steaming down the outside, but then a bolter would appear, and his quaddy ticket would come out of his pocket at the hundred and he'd look at it and he'd throw it out the window. <laughs> and he'd actually say it, Quaddy tickets out the window. <laughs> uh, great characters. David, uh, I'm sure we could go for another half an hour here quite easily, but we've got to wrap it up. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been great chatting to you. I knew it would be, Sammy. I knew it would be. Uh, as I said, we could go on forever, but uh, look, some great calls. Just pulling out five, I'm, pro- I'm sure there's probably 500 or more that we could have pulled out, David. You did a fantastic job, and uh, I'm disappointed you're not calling these days, to be honest. Oh, thank you for remembering. But uh, we still get around them at the track and the trials and the, and the, the sales, more importantly. I've gone into a bit of bloodstock business. We're buying and trading a few horses, so we've kicked a couple of goals. Well, if you... Breeders, Rubik and Pelter, they're going okay. They are. <laughs> they certainly are. And if you get up to Queensland, let us know and come into the studio and join us in the show one day. It'll be great. Well, we are deciding to venture north very soon, so we might become neighbours. Oh, that'd be good. Excellent. We'll look forward to it. Yeah, Thanks, David. Thanks, guys. Thanks good on you. Thanks Thanks for your time. No, it was great. Great chat catching up with uh, with David Rafael. Now, remember, Queensland is your place to race this year. The action continues this week right across the Sunshine State. Visit racingqueensland.com.au. Time for a break, Sammy.